This message is brought to you by Mill City Church in Lowell, Massachusetts. For more information, please visit millcitychurch.net. Well, I want to start this morning with a question and then a confession. The first question is this. This is for all of you, and that's, are you ready for today? Nice. You're all very compliant. That question actually is very vague, and so I'm sure a lot of you are thinking, like, what is he asking? What is he asking that we're ready for? Is he asking if we're ready to listen to him for 30 minutes talk? Um, Are we ready for lunch? Are we ready for a nap? Like, it's a very broad question. Um, As I thought about that question for myself this morning, I said, Sean, are, are you ready? Do you feel prepared to get up before your church family and share truth from God's word for half an hour or so. And as I came into this morning and in the hours of last night, my answer, this is my confession, uh, was no. I did not feel prepared or ready um, to do what we're doing right now. And I know that that's not really a great way to instill confidence in all of you as we move into this time. But I've kind of grown through that initial confession of not feeling prepared, feeling inadequate, and just, just feeling a lack in that moment to, to realize that, especially as I reviewed the content of what I was hoping to preach, um, that what I was planning to share was speaking directly to my situation. Um, as you see on the screen, we're going to talk today about devotion to Jesus And we're going to follow the life of um, an individual who doesn't get a ton of screen time in the New Testament. It's it's Mary. And I'm not talking about Mary, the mother of Jesus. I'm not talking about Mary Magdalene. I'm talking about the third most famous Mary in the New Testament. And that's Mary of Bethany, um, the sister of Lazarus and Martha. And in my moments of stress and, uh, and crisis, I realized that I needed to take some notes from Mary, and I needed to realize that ultimately the place where I need to be and the place where I'm actually most ready to be used by God is when I'm dependent on him at his feet. And so I hope that little bit of transparency this morning um, sets your expectations, um, not just for like the quality of what we're about to experience, but just sets your expectations for how we each should approach our faith with God how we each um, should approach gathering together to worship on a Sunday morning. And so, if you would turn with me today, we're going to start in Luke chapter 10. Um, There are three instances in the New Testament in which um, we have an encounter with Mary of Bethany. Um, And over the course of those three encounters, I think she has probably 12 total words of dialogue. She doesn't say much. Um, but there's something about her devotion, um, her love and commitment to Christ um, that speaks volumes that I think we as the church can learn so much from. And so uh, in Luke chapter 10, uh, verse 38, um, please follow along as I read. It says this, Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, 
who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. This is a great passage and so relevant to us today, to me, even this morning. So just to recap the context of what's going on, Jesus is traveling from town to town throughout Israel, teaching and healing as he goes. As an itinerant preacher in first century Palestine, he didn't have a tour bus or an RV. He would just simply stay at the house of someone in that given town who would welcome him in. It was actually a lot like Airbnb, but with no insurance. As Jesus entered Bethany, a town about two miles outside of Jerusalem, he was hosted by two sisters, Martha and Mary. And in this Jewish culture, hospitality was hugely important. And Martha especially took this role as host very seriously. Granted, also, there's an added pressure because she's hosting literally the most important house guest in the history of house guests, Jesus. But in the midst of her cleaning, cooking, accommodating, and serving, she can't help but notice that Mary isn't doing anything to help her throw this party. Mary is just sitting at Jesus' feet, being useless in Martha's eyes. Do you know that feeling that you're working hard on that group project or, or, or busting your butt for the team and you can't stop fixating on that someone who isn't seemingly pulling their weight? It can start to take over your entire mindset and Martha can only take it so long. So she complains to Jesus. Uh, she tells Jesus to tell Mary to do her duty and help her sister out. And suddenly, Jesus is caught in the middle of some tense family drama. But what's amazing is how Jesus responds, speaking directly to the heart of Martha's anxiousness. He shows us, and this is the first point in our notes, that before we can serve and grow, before we can grow and serve the world for Jesus, we must be like Mary and sit at his feet. To sit at someone's feet means to be someone's disciple, or more generally, someone's student or follower. We see this definition in Acts 22.3, where Paul in his testimony before the crowds of Jerusalem says that he became a Pharisee by being educated at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strict order uh, of the law of our fathers. So what's remarkable about this scene with Mary is that by sitting at Jesus' feet, she's actually learning to be as a disciple. You see that in your notes as well. Mary's learning as a disciple which means Mary is soaking up his word and teaching, observing his character and actions, simply enjoying his presence. This in and of itself was radical for that time because it was unusual for a woman in first century Judaism to be accepted by a teacher as a disciple. But Jesus not only allows this countercultural behavior, but he defends it when Martha demands that Mary ought to be bearing her normative responsibilities as a host. This is huge. It shows us that Jesus isn't looking for roles to fill, but he's looking for souls that are willing to follow him. Jesus isn't typecasting his disciples to all look a certain way or to be sourced from the same place. It doesn't matter where you're from, what kind of resources you have, 
how you look, how strong your reading level, or how much you may have been marginalized by society. Jesus is inviting you to sit at his feet. Don't disqualify yourself from growing as a disciple when Christ welcomes you to himself as you are. But now you may ask, how can we sit at the feet of someone who's not physically here? Jesus is not physically here, by the way. Well, we can do that today, and we're doing that now by reading the Bible, the very word Jesus divinely inspired and preserved so that his disciples could hear his words and see his heart even after he left earth physically. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17 says that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is what a disciple needs. We sit at Jesus' feet as we swim through his word. It is here that we, his diverse and unfiltered disciples, connect with Jesus and are refined, matured, strengthened, equipped, unified, and emboldened for his mission and his glory. It is this connection that Mary prizes above all else. To her, this isn't simply something beneficial for her life, but absolutely essential. Which brings us to our second bullet, that as we sit at the feet of Jesus to learn as, we don't just learn as his disciple, but we're also there recognizing our greatest need. Mary isn't treating Jesus like a Groupon. It's not like finding a good opportunity and trying to take advantage of it because it becomes highly recommended. No, this goes far deeper. This is finding a treasure in a field so valuable that in joy you sell everything you own to buy that field. This is seeing the truth um, of Matthew 4, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Mary saw clearly that one thing is necessary. Martha could not see clearly because she was distracted with much serving. She was anxious because she had convinced herself that so many other things were necessary. Do you know that feeling? This, the feeling of Martha? If I don't blank, then blank is going to happen. If I don't blank, then people are going to think blank. The reality is we are just consumed by ourselves and the opinions of others. So how often we take our desire for approval and dress it up to look like a desire to serve. What set Mary apart in this situation is that Mary was more enthralled with Jesus than Mary. John Bloom from Desiring God explains it this way. Being enthralled, engrossed, captivated by someone or something has a powerful clarifying effect on our priorities. We make time for what we are passionate about and we neglect what is less important. We can be tempted to think that the right time management technique is the answer to a well-balanced life and getting the important things done. But it's not true. Techniques may increase our efficiency, but they can't determine our priorities. The heart does that. We order our lives by what we love. And so church, do you admit that you find yourself 
distracted and anxious much of the time, most of the time, all of the time? Could it be because you do not daily find yourself increasingly enthralled by Jesus, captivated and relying upon him and his word for your daily bread and portion? The truth is no matter how normative they may become, anxiety and distraction are not God's plan for your life. Jesus instructs his disciples in Luke 12, 29 through 31. He says, do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. It's true that there are many important things that demand our attention and our time. Jobs, families, health, sleep, keeping up on Netflix shows. No, that's not important. Um, But Jesus himself says that one thing is most needful. And if we pursue first that which is most needful, our loving Father, who knows us better than ourselves, will graciously meet all our other needs as well. And so will you sit at Jesus' feet, not just to learn as a disciple, uh, but to value him above all else? Would our prayer be that of Asaph in Psalm 73? He says, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. May we follow Mary's example and choose the good portion that cannot be taken away from us. And so as we transition from this passage to our second encounter with Mary, would you turn with me to John 11? It's incredible to see that the faith cultivated at the feet of Jesus will be tested in this next section. And we'll see where it stands and we'll see where that faith of a disciple valuing Jesus responds to tragedy. You see in in John 11, in verse 1, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, He whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now, it's not hard to notice there's a strange discrepancy between verse 5 and verse 6. We we read in verse 5 that Jesus loves Martha, her sister, Mary, and Lazarus. And then in verse 6, he responds to their seeming need, their heartache, um, their request for his presence by staying where he was and seeming not to respond to the situation. He could have gone to Bethany at any time and healed Lazarus from his sickness. He could have actually just simply spoken the word or thought the word, and Lazarus could have been healed from a distance. But instead, he does neither. 
And after two days, explains to his disciples plainly why this is the case. He says in verse 14 that Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. And so finally, the very confused disciples follow Jesus and they go to Bethany. The disciples are confused, Mary and Martha are confused and devastated. Their, their brother Lazarus, whom Jesus loved, is dead. And as Jesus approaches Bethany, Martha meets him on the road. And after a powerful discussion that we don't have time to unpack today, Jesus tells Martha, well, sketch that out. <laughs> we don't have time to unpack today. But um, after that conversation with Jesus, Martha sends for her sister Mary, and we pick up um, in verse 28. So Martha called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. And then skipping down to verse 32, we see Mary's reaction before Jesus, the one whom she sat as his disciple um, just uh, chapters earlier. Now when Jesus... Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. This is an incredibly emotional passage, but Mary shows us that even in the midst of tragedy, pain, and questions, the most important thing for us to do is to fall at his feet. That's the next point in your notes. Now, unfortunately, there's so much in this passage that we have to skip over due to time. But in the time that I have, I want us to hone in on what characterizes Mary's behavior towards Jesus, even as she's broken by loss. Verse 28 through 29 show us that when she heard that the teacher was calling her, she rose quickly and went to him. While in the midst of deep pain, Mary could have easily blamed Jesus but he was calling her to himself. Mary did not close her off, close herself off from him or run the other direction. Instead, she rose quickly without hesitation and went to Jesus. Suddenly, we're in a moment of reckoning where she meets Jesus face to face and her faith will be tested. It is here where Mary will demonstrate whether she believes Jesus is just another teacher who let her down or if he is still Lord in the midst of this tragedy. The attitude separating these two outcomes is a simple reality of this, trusting in his sovereignty. That's your next point. Trusting God's sovereignty means we believe God is the supreme authority and all things are under his control, even our greatest tragedy and hardship. Mary demonstrates this trust in verse 32 as she falls at Jesus' feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. While these 12 words are most definitely spoken by a shattered woman, they're still filled with faith. In her questions, Mary humbly falls at Jesus' feet rather than defiantly wagging her finger in his face. Even in her grief, Mary calls Jesus Lord, honoring his continued authority over her life despite her loss. Even in her helplessness, Mary does not question Jesus' power but rightfully acknowledged that it was within his ability to save Lazarus. 
She doesn't know why he didn't save her brother, but she maintains her faith in Jesus' authority and goodness in the midst of the rawest of emotion. She did all of this without the benefit of our vantage. As we can see throughout the passage, the evidence of Jesus sovereignly working his greater plan for this situation. If we run through those sections here, I'll just read them off. In verse 15, earlier, Jesus tells his disciples, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. Believe what? Well, in verse 25, Jesus tells Martha the ultimate truth. This entire situation is purpose to declare. Jesus wants death and everyone facing it to know. And this is verse 25. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Jesus was orchestrating the events of Lazarus' death to point his disciples, Mary and Martha included, to this glorious eternal truth. Because not only does he point to it, but he proves it. In verse 43, I'm very emotional this morning. Wow. All right. Thanks, Dad. That's my dad, by the way, and my mom. He proves in verse 43 where he cries out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out of the tomb. And a man four days dead comes walking out of the tomb. In that moment, four days of sorrow is radically transformed into overwhelming joy and a moment of faithfulness to trust in the sovereignty of God, believing as Paul writes in Romans 8, 28, that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And while this is our ultimate hope, there's another part of this passage that I think is important to point out. We don't make the bearing, this ultimate hope that we have, trusting in God's sovereignty, doesn't make the bearing of life's sorrows suddenly enjoyable. What I love so much about this passage is how it shows us that trusting in God's sovereignty does not entail or produce a cold, emotionless calculation of life's hardest moments, somehow believing that with enough faith and perspective, we shouldn't need to react to pain and loss. No, like Mary, we fall at Jesus' feet and grieve, but we can do so remembering his love. And that's the next point in your notes. Jesus' love for individuals is threaded all throughout this passage. In verse 3, when Martha and Mary send their message to Jesus, they said, Lord, he whom you love is ill. In verse 5, the author John took the entire voice, a verse to make it clear. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. It was apparently evident that everyone that Jesus cared, it was apparently evident to everyone that Jesus cared deeply for this family. But Jesus' love went beyond simply caring for this family. Jesus his love went even further than simply reversing the death that had been causing them so much pain. In verse 33, we see him go an even step further. We see that when Jesus saw Mary weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, 
Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. And so the Jews said, see how he loved him. Jesus was not aloof to Mary's plan. He saw her weeping and it moved him in his spirit. When, he broke, when, he, when we fall broken at Jesus' feet, we can know that Jesus sees that pain and that he weeps with us, joining us in the sorrow of that loss. It's by this that we know that grieving does not inherently indicate a lack of faith because Jesus knew everything that was to come and yet he still grieves the reality of suffering and death. Even the knowledge of resurrection in the future, even with knowledge of resurrection in the future, he perceived and shared in Mary's grief in the present. Jesus, in weeping with Mary, provides the example himself for the command in Romans 12, 15, to weep with those who weep. Death is a reality of our current existence. It is a mark of the fall that ravages our broken world. And while the example of Mary and the reaction of Jesus show that there are situations in which we ought to grieve in this life, we are not to grieve as those who do not have hope. For as Jesus grieved while looking forward to the eventual resurrection of Lazarus, we too can grieve with hope, looking back on the sacrifice and resurrection of Christ, who has ultimately borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, being crushed for our iniquities, that his, by his wounds we are healed. It is in this hope that we can fall at Jesus' feet, trusting in his sovereignty and remembering his love. All right, on to the last point. The rest of chapter 11 basically details the fallout of Lazarus' resurrection. Not only do we see many people come to believe in Jesus, but we also see that when the Pharisees hear of it, that this is the last straw, that they commit wholeheartedly to put Jesus to death. Because of this, Jesus could no longer walk openly among the Jews, and so he spent some time away in a town called Ephraim with his disciples. But as the Passover approached, Jesus returned to Bethany and is here where we see our final encounter with Mary in verse 1 of chapter 12. It says, Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So Mary really outdoes herself this time, yet again disturbing another party because of her love for Jesus. In this last recorded encounter with Mary, she is found once again at Jesus' feet, but this time not in a desire to learn or in humble sorrow, but in extravagant, unashamed worship. You see this as the last section of your notes, that we too, like Mary, must worship at his feet, responding to what he's done and treasuring who he is. Worship is an act of ascribing value. The act of anointing is a symbolic act of setting something apart, and Mary did so to communicate Jesus' value above all else. This whole meal together was planned specifically to express wonder and gratitude to Jesus for raising Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus used to be dead, 
and now he's not. And Jesus is the reason why, and that was reason to celebrate. Lazarus was sitting there at the table with them as exhibit A, a living proof of Jesus' power working in all of their lives. Mary cannot help but respond in a radical demonstration of worship. This demonstration of worship is so many things, and I'll list a few here. This worship is lavishly sacrificial. For the perfume used was worth almost a year's wages. Can you imagine dropping $25,000 to show love to someone? To Mary, it wasn't a problem because the cost of what sacrificed was nothing compared to the value of Christ. In this moment, Mary's heart corresponded to the treasure that Jesus is. This worship is also humble and intimate, for the washing of feet was reserved for servants, and Mary wiped his feet with her hair. This worship was evident and noticed, for the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Every house guest could not help but see and smell the evidence of Mary's love for Jesus. But not everyone approved of this worship. We see in verse 4 that in reaction to Mary's demonstration and sacrifice before Jesus, Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. This is so great. Jesus defends Mary as she's at his feet yet again, this time before a selfishly materialistic judgment disguised as some kind of pragmatic efficiency. John Piper writes this about uh, this scene. He says, In response to the worth of Jesus, Mary's heart was full of wonder and thankfulness and joy, overflowing in lavish demonstrations of affection. And Judas's heart felt none of that, but valued money more than he valued Jesus. Mary loved Jesus. Judas loved money. Mary's heart corresponded to the treasure that Jesus is. Judas's heart contradicted the treasure that Jesus was, is. I think it's also funny that John himself, in, in writing this, takes a, a dig at Judas himself, calling him a thief straight up right before Jesus actually calls him out. That's a very needless aside. Um, but what's, what's so, what struck me about this passage is that, especially as we talk about worship, as we talk about giving Jesus the value and responding with affection and intimacy that he deserves, there's the reality that there will be those who respond and say, what are you doing? How could you sacrifice that? How couldn't you have been more efficient with that resource or that time? Um, and that's what Judas is, is presenting in this situation. But the reality is Jesus welcomes and desires and defends our wholehearted worship. And so the last point I have under this topic of worshiping at his feet is that we worship at his feet withholding nothing. So when 
when you're encountering Jesus in his word, when you're growing in relationship with him in prayer and obedience, like the natural result, result is to be in awe of him. It's to ascribe worth and glory. And, and sometimes you just can't contain that emotion. And it, it, it creates praise, singing of songs, raising of hands, dancing around. It creates sacrificial giving. It creates obedience and sacrifice of self and our resources. Um, and Jesus wants that. Jesus welcomes that. Jesus doesn't want people like Judas to steal our joy. Don't let, as you, as you grow with Jesus and as you walk with him, don't let other people try to moderate your joy. Let that come out. Let that flow. Let that be an evidence of the change in your life withholding nothing before him in worship. And so as we look at Mary's example, I guess the question is, is, is your worship like this? Is our worship like this? Is it lavishly sacrificial, intimate, and humble, unashamedly evident to the world around us? What we see in this passage is that the cost of worship and how others feel about it is not important compared to what Jesus sees. And Jesus demonstrates that when we worship at his feet, responding to what he's done, treasuring who he is, and withholding nothing, he is most pleased. So much so that Jesus responds to Mary's act of worship and to Judas as well, saying, truly, I say to you, whoever, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. So Jesus prophetically declared in that moment that We'd be reading this today to see from Mary's example and to learn what it means to worship at his feet. And so as we close this morning, I want us to ponder this amazing reality that we just spent a half hour studying the third most famous Mary in the New Testament, that despite having only 12 words of dialogue, only three short instances of events surrounding her, that there's still so much that we can learn. She was nothing remarkably special. She didn't preach a sermon. She didn't perform any miracles. She didn't have any visions. She was just an ordinary woman, but a woman who in every situation of life was found at the feet of Jesus. Jesus never asked her to do more. In fact, it was her in which he was most pleased. He met her and approved her in each moment, defending her before an accusing world. Church, we have to see that this is the heart and the posture of our faith. There isn't anything more to it. Every other fruit of obedience, every gifting leveraged for God, they all flow out of this posture and just daily falling before the feet of Jesus. And so in our final, in our final points... Church, will you spend time at the feet of Jesus? We've seen that we do that through his word. We do that through growing as a disciple, being in relationship with him, consistent and unceasingly in prayer. We do that through obedience. We do that by bringing our rawest and, and most hurt emotions to him. If you're a Christian in the room, I would implore you to be like Mary and spend time at the feet of Jesus. I pray that if you're going through a long list of things in your head, the things you're doing for Christ, 
that's great. But don't try and do them from any other vantage than Jesus' feet. I'd encourage you to be humbled and see that we must learn not only from the giants of our faith, um, but the smallest examples of obedience and devotion we see in Mary and those around us. It's kind of a small aside. It's, we're, we're a culture that's obsessed with heroes. We want to look up to people that seem larger than life. Um, we see that in our culture. We see that in our, our superhero movies. Um, we see that in scripture as well, just the amazing things that God accomplished through people like Moses, parting the Red Sea, David, uh, killing a giant with a stone, um, Elijah calling down fire from heaven. And there's so much about their obedience and their submission to God um, that we can learn from and we should learn from and seek to imitate. But I pray that we would not be so focused on the dramatic, so fixated and yearning after or, or staking the value of our faith on those dramatic happenings. Um, but in fact, the, the walk of most of our lives is going to be faithfully and obediently living our lives at the feet of Jesus. And, and through that posture, God will use our lives for great things. But the great things are not what make us acceptable before him and are not what he's pleased by, but it's, it's that initial posture of being at his feet. And so I hope that you not only do this, but that the world could see this pattern in your life. So the last point we have is, can the world see you at the feet of Jesus? This isn't a call to be deliberately showy. And so I'll just quote John Piper one last time so he can clear things up. It is a beautiful thing when the worth of Jesus and the love of his followers match, when the value of his perfections and the intensity of our affections correspond. That there is what the world needs to see. This might sound crazy, but the world doesn't really need your thoughts on theology or politics. The world doesn't need your straight-laced life or moral consistency. These things have value, but they are not the most needful. The world needs to see Christians all over the world, rich and poor, all colors, clean and dirty, intelligent, not intelligent. They need to see these people falling at the feet of Jesus. Not a poster board of theology or, or a list of moral standards, but a body of believers demonstrating a posture of repentance and dependence on Christ. And so if you're not a Christian in this room, I hope that the example of Mary would cause you pause and consider the possibility that this world has nothing to offer more than can compare with this relationship with Jesus. I hope you see that same posture of Mary displayed in the lives of the Christians in this room and throughout the world. And through that, I hope that you see that there's nothing more satisfying, more clarifying, and more worthy of delight than a relationship with Jesus. And so churches, we've gone through this, um, this, this, this journey together. I pray um, that um, in a simple way we would see the simple truth that Jesus is most pleased when we are at his feet and that we would sacrifice and prioritize and be enthralled by um, a love of Jesus that keeps us there. 
through all circumstances and, and all seasons of life. And so as we wrap that up, would you pray with me um, as we respond through song? Heavenly Father, um, we're all really broken, um, but I thank you that um, that does not disqualify us for coming to you. Um, it does not disqualify us from falling at your feet. In fact, it's the best way that we can be. It's the best posture and attitude with which you can transform and fulfill and use our lives. God, I pray that pride in our hearts would just be broken, um, that we would not come to you trying to offer something of ourselves before we have spent time at our, your feet, uh, being filled with your goodness, being in awed and enthralled by your mercy. Um, God, I pray that this posture would not only transform our lives, um, but would transform your church, transform um, this body of believers, would transform this region, um, and that the world would be transformed by um, just the reality and consistent demonstration of Christians falling at your feet. God, I thank you that um, you don't require more than this. Um, and it is simple and achievable and, and just what we can walk, we can walk through by your grace. I pray that this would be the case in our hearts today and as we go from this place. And I thank you for your word and, which, and how it shapes us and, um, and challenges us as it has this morning. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.